Hey everybody, welcome to the Outpost Community Church Podcast. My name's Addison, I'm on staff here as the youth pastor. We are currently going through the book of Matthew, and so we hope you enjoy listening and have a wonderful week of worship. Okay, okay, well welcome everybody. You can have a seat, make your way back. That's my favorite time. I love watching everybody just get to know each other. Well, hey, there's a lot of new faces in the room, and so if you don't know me, my name is Greg. I have a privilege of being lead pastor here. You guys like this shirt? Yeah. yeah. That's what I'm talking about. That's all I need. My great uncle gave me this shirt. I don't know if that's more embarrassing. Oh, I'm a little, there we go. Got some feedback. It might be, um, okay, there we go. All right, well, hey, welcome. I'm glad you guys are here. Are you glad to be here? Yeah. It's good to be here. Hopefully God's been good to you this past week, and you've seen that. Um, well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, continuing our journey through the book of Matthew. So if you want to go there, go there. If you, you want to go there on your phone, go on your phone. My recommendation is if you don't have a Bible, I'd love to give you one because having your own physical Bible is awesome. Uh, and Christians, just letting you know, the more you read your Bible, the more familiar, familiar you get with your own Bible, it's crazy. It's like a relationship with that book. There, I have this one, which some of you gifted to me, which has been really sweet. It's been hard to transition to. Um, not because it says something different, but because it's just not mine. And, but my Bible, there's some passages, I know what side of the page they're on. I can feel it. I go, oh, I know it's somewhere over. And that's what happens when you get really close to your Bible and close to the Word of God. You start to get to where you're like, man, this is familiar. I know where I'm going through here, and it's sweet. So, but hey, we're in Matthew 9. If you don't know, it's in the New Testament, first gospel. It's the ninth chapter. We're going to be jumping in. But uh, hey, when I was... Uh, Getting introduced to church, I was going to a church that was something like this, looking. It was a Baptist church called Midway Baptist Church in uh, Goose Creek, South Carolina. Anybody been to South Carolina? Great. Anybody been to a Southern Baptist church in the South? All right, here we go. You know the context. So the Reverend Billy Hill uh, was my pastor. If you take his name and you flip it, what is it? Hillbilly. All right, and so uh, Reverend Billy Hill, this is no lie, his name was on the sign. Uh, he would always start his messages with a joke, okay, which is sort of a joke as a pastor that you should not do that, but I'm going to start today with a joke, and there's a reason. So here's the joke. All right, let me set you up first. Hey, why did this scarecrow get an award? Because he was outstanding in his field. All right, listen, here's, there's another joke that just happened. Some of you, it hits you. And then some others, it finally hits you. He's outstanding in his field. So here's the thing. I tell you a joke, not to make a joke, and not because Matthew 9 is a joke and Jesus is about to make a joke. I do that because I want to highlight to you the structure of a joke. A joke has a setup, and then it has a punchline. Okay, the setup is the scarecrow, right? You guys mentally understand what a scarecrow is. In China, they don't know what a scarecrow is. In the Middle East, they're like, what are you talking about? Right? But you know what a scarecrow is, so I set you up, and then here comes the punchline. The punchline is when something unexpected happens, and when it hits you, you can't help but what? Laugh. Okay, great. In this passage, you're going to get set up, okay? I'm giving you a heads up. You're going to get set up. There's going to be three setups and three punchlines in this story, okay? Now, the first two setups and punchlines are for those who are in the room with Jesus. The third one is for you, the reader, and it's going to be good, and hopefully you get it, all right? So we're going to look at this, and uh, here's ultimately the point of this whole passage. Anybody like having the ending before we get started? Anybody, who in here is the person that reads the last chapter and then goes and reads the book? <clears throat> Listen, no offense, there's something wrong with you, okay? <laughs> Life is not exciting that way, okay? So but for some of you, listen, I want you to walk away knowing this. I'm not like trying to impress you or surprise you. The point of this whole book or this whole uh, passage here is that Jesus has the authority of God. Jesus has the authority of God. Anybody want to guess why before we get going? Because he's, because he's God. Now, you're a bunch of Christians. Some of you were raised in Baptist churches. You had a felt board that, you know, your grandmother put Moses on and did the whole thing. So for you, this story we're about to go into is so boring. 
so normal, so regular. It's kind of lost its flavor and its excitement. But I want to tell you, this story is so intense, it's ridiculous. And so my job today is to kind of take you mentally into the story and to show you that the, the truth that Jesus is, has the authority of God is crazy. And most of you wouldn't believe it at this moment in this day. Okay, so let's get into this passage. <clears throat> We're going to look at three things, that Jesus knows what you really need. We're going to look at Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. And at the end, we're going to see, you know, do you believe? That's it. All right, you with me? All right, smile. It's a good day. All right, sun is shining. I got a Hawaiian shirt on. Let's do this. All right, so let's go to verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, in getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Pause. Let's set a little context. Last week, we were over on the the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. From your view, it would be like this. Okay, so the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, he was over there, he healed somebody. Who was it? The demon-possessed man. Good job, all right? Then the people in the, the garrisons, right, they were like, hey, you need to leave our land. So he gets in his boat, he sails back across the Sea of Galilee, goes back to his own town. Mark tells us it's not Nazareth, it's Capernaum, all right? Capernaum is a little, uh, little village next to Galilee, okay? It's the town of uh, Peter and Andrew, right? John and his brother, James. And so they all come from that place. Now, he goes to this place. It's kind of the home base for Jesus. It's a little town, okay? Smaller than Ralston. Does that help you? Okay? Okay, small. Land-wise, way smaller than Ralston. People-wise, a little bit bigger than Ralston, Okay? And so he comes back. He's probably staying at Peter's house. I've seen this house. So if you go to Jerusalem or you go to Israel with me next year, you could come and you could see this. I was going to put it on the screen. You wouldn't be able to see it very well. And so he's at his house. He gets back, and he's in his own city. Okay, so that's the context. It's a tiny little house. Like, no lie, it's probably these three rows right here. It's about that space. Maybe the fourth row. It is tiny. And all around this house, where they've excavated it, are these little alleyways that have other houses around them. And listen, the alleyways, no lot, are a little smaller than this right here. You see that? It's tiny. So everything's kind of jam-packed in this one area. There's a little bitty house right here. It's probably Peter's house, okay? And, and so that's where Jesus is. And then we get to verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, all right, pause right there. We've got to set a little more context. He says he saw some people, all right? Now, Jesus, or uh, Matthew is writing to the Jews. The guy who wrote this book you're reading right now, he's writing to the Jews. And so writing to the Jews, he's a Jew. He doesn't set as much context because he's trying to make a specific point, which we're going to get to. But Mark, when he writes the gospel, he's writing to the Romans, so just like me telling you the scarecrow joke, you get it, because you know what a scarecrow is. If I was telling it to somebody from China, I'd go, well, listen, all right, scarecrow is this where we take clothes like this, we put hay in them, we put it out in the middle of the field, and then the birds don't come. And they're like, what? All right, then you tell them the joke, and they're like, okay, I think I get it, right? So does that make sense? Okay, you got to set the context for the joke. You get it. Okay, so Matthew doesn't set as much context, but Mark does. Mark tells us, all right? There's actually four men. So uh, there's four men there. So let me read Mark chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Four friends. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. All right, you see this? This is some dramatic details. Why does Matthew leave these out? Because he doesn't have much time. There's a lot to share. Okay, so listen. Let's just kind of envision this for a moment because there's a key phrase in here that Jesus says, or, or it says about Jesus. It says that Jesus saw what, guys? He saw their, say it again, he saw their, that word saw, idon in the Greek, it means to see, to consider, to watch. Here's the question I have for you. Can you see faith? Can you see faith? Yes, you can. Now, let's go into this scene real quick, okay? What did Jesus see happening? Well, he didn't see the guys on the outside, 
Well, these four men, I mean, think about what kind of good friends these are. Men, do you guys have any good friends? Guys that like, man, they're going to die for you. You got any good friends like that? All right, you need some more friends. Let's meet, okay? All right, and so these four friends, let's just imagine that maybe a couple of them were sitting up on the mount when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, and they heard him teach, and they were wild. Holy cow, this guy, right? They saw when he was coming down to Capernaum, maybe they heard about some healings that had happened or seen some healings themselves, and, but they've got a friend who's paralyzed, which in that context... His life is basically over. Everybody has to take care of this guy. He doesn't, there's no wheelchairs, no wheelchair ramps. It's rocky ground. His life is kind of ruined. Now, these friends, maybe they work and they support this guy, but this guy's got to watch his friends go to work, and he doesn't get to give anything to them, but they give to him every single day, providing for him. Well, they suddenly see this healer. Now, I just kind of imagine, I'm, look, I'm just kind of imagining here. That when they finally realize what this guy can do, they probably run to go get their friend. But the problem was, Jesus got in a boat and he left and went to the other side of the sea. And so he's gone. And it's kind of a little bit hopeless. Is he coming back? What's going to happen? Well, suddenly he comes back and they hear he's back. Now think about what they're feeling now. I heard he's back. You think there's going to be a little rush in their heart to, we've got to get our friend there now. And so they run over and just four guys, I think four corners of a mat, they're each grabbing a corner and uh, in the military, this is kind of what they do, man. They'll, they'll run you out, right, on one of these little, little stretchers. And they're running this man down there. Now, they get down to this little bitty house with tiny little alleyways and a little bitty door, and they can't get in because other people have heard that Jesus is there. And the house is packed. The doorway's packed. Everybody's trying to listen in. Maybe there's a window. It's packed, and they can't get in. Now, I want you to imagine, these guys are desperate. Do you think they tried to push their way in? Anybody imagine they tried to push their way in? I guarantee you they tried to push their way into this room. Shoving people, let us in. And everybody around goes, I don't care about your friend. I got my own things I'm trying to deal with here. And so what do they do? They go behind the house. They're like, what are we going to do? One of them, I'm sure, there was always a crazy friend in a five-friend group. And one of them was like, here's a ladder. We're going up. All right, here we go. And they're like, just imagine this guy, limp, trying to get up on the roof. And so they, they carry him up onto the roof, and it's most likely a grass or clay roof, right, or both. And the brothers start ripping it apart. Now listen to me. I know you guys are going, man, I know. What a great story, right? What, what would it take for you to go to your neighbor's house and start ripping a hole in his roof? Listen, I dare one of you. To just leave here and just start ripping shingles, cutting a hole, and just like drop your kid down in their house. You're laughing because you're going, that's insane. If you saw somebody, listen, if you saw me and Chet and Eric Walkup doing that at someone's house, you're going to go, okay, they've lost their mind. But because you know us, you go, those are sober-minded guys. They know something I don't know. And clearly, they are convicted. They rip open a roof of some other dude's house. They drop down a friend that's paralytic into the room. And now let me ask you, can you see faith? Can you see it? You could see these guys' faith. They, listen, you have to believe that Jesus is the healer if you're going to do something like that. And so they drop this man down into this room, believing that he is the healer. And I want to tell you guys, faith apart from works is dead. If you say you have a faith, it's easy to say you have a faith, but what are you always going to say? All right, well, show me your faith. We're like, how can I show you my faith? Let me give you an example of that right now. Jake, you want to come up here? I'm going to show you guys just a little example here, okay? All right, let's do a little. I'm not, we're not going to do a trust fall. That's different, and <laughs> we're not going to do that. All right, so Jake, just stand right over here. So guys, I've got, I've got three different chairs up here. Do you all see that? Okay, scoot, just, you can stand on the speaker if you want. I got three chairs. Do you see, you see the three chairs? Okay. You see this blue one, right? Or gray one, whatever this is. You see, you remember this? This red one? Okay. And I don't know if you can see this, but here's the third chair. Okay. Jake, let me just ask you a simple question. Uh, do you have faith that this box will hold you if you sit on it? Do you want to test it first? You don't want to test it. Okay. Great. Anybody else probably agree, right? 
I actually, in my office, I was like, let me make sure, and I almost just like, ah, okay. What about this red chair? Uh, skeptical. skeptical. <laughs> Maybe a little more faith in the box. How do you feel? How do you, okay, look, how do you feel about this chair? Okay, prove it. Y'all see that faith? Did you feel at nervous at all that that was going to break? Not at all. Okay, let's sit on this box real quick. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. All right. We guys thank Jake. All right, thanks. Listen, if Jake were to say to you, I believe this box could hold me, what could we say to Jake? Sit on the box then, bud. Oh, no, listen. I don't have to sit on it to prove you my faith. You know what? I'm going to a different church. It's like, okay, all right, that's fine. Still didn't sit on the box. I don't believe you have any faith. So he, when he says that he saw their faith, what he's saying is he sees how desperate they are to get to Jesus. They, listen, it's not saying that they believe he's the son of God. It's saying that they believe that he's a healer. And so that is the setup right there in the story. You have now been set up. Everyone has been set up. And Jesus now is going to take advantage of everybody's expectations. What do you think the expectation is in the room right now? He's going to heal that man. Or at least he's going to have something to do with him. Like, All right, here we go. Let's see it, Jesus. Okay? And here's what Jesus says instead. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Let's look at this. Here's the setup. Five men. Okay, put it on the screen. Here's the setup of this, of this story. Five men tearing open roof to get their broken friend to a healer. Here's the punchline. Seeing their faith, the healer forgives his sin. So what's the point, guys? Here's the point of the first setup. You need spiritual healing more than you need anything else in your life. Here's the setup for everybody who's sitting in the room at Jesus at that time. You need healing from sin more than you need anything in your life. You may not believe that, but here's the thing. I, I, I see this all the time. I do this. Most of us in this room, we think, we say, and we act out things like, uh, if I blank, then I blank. Okay, let me fill it in. If I was married, then... I would be okay. Single people, calling you out right now. All right. If I was wealthy, then I would be all right. If I was healthy, then I would be happy. We have all these things that are in the blank. You, whatever your thing is, if you're honest with yourself and you have a little bit of self-awareness, man, if I just had this, if I just had that, then it would be okay. Then I'll be all right. Right? If I just had this opportunity like my, that guy had, I mean, I would do so much better with it. And what Jesus is saying right here is this. If I am forgiven of my sin, then I have all I need. That's what your Bible teaches you. If I have forgiveness of my sin, my greatest problem, then I have all I need. I have the great solution. Paul says in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, he's talking about contentment here, but I just want to show you, this is a man who knows he's been forgiven of his sin and goes, man, I got all I need. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And he's just talking about some friends like, hey, I, he had some problems, he had some struggles, and they wanted to provide for me. He's like, man, I'm so thankful for that. But he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, whatever fill in the blank, I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. If you know anything about Paul, that brother's experienced it like no one in this room. I can, listen to what he says. This is the famous line, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Listen, you could tattoo that on your arm for your football team. That's great. But what it really means, he's saying, is that, listen, in Jesus, I got all I need. What do I got to worry about? Come hell or high water, let's go. And he's had both. And he also says famously in Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayer... 
and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, for to, me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's not a suicidal man. That's a man who knows, I have everything I need right now in Jesus Christ. And if he takes my life, I'm going to have abundantly more than I can ever ask, think, or imagine. Paul is just insufferable. He's going to share Jesus with everybody all over the world. And then they go, you know what, we'll beat you up. And he's like, fine, beat me up. I'm still going to talk about Jesus. Goes to the next town, shares about Jesus. Fine, we're going to throw you in prison. Cool, I'm going to tell the guards about Jesus. They're like, you're kidding me right now. And then he's like, all right, fine, then we're going to kill you, buddy. He goes, to live is Christ, to die is gain, baby. Right? Like, he's ready to go. Why? Because the blank has been filled in. If I'm forgiven for my sin, I have all that I need. Listen, this is absolutely the point of this passage. Listen, people come to Jesus, or they come to a church They come to a pastor, they come to these faith workers, they come to Jesus for all kinds of reasons, but there's only real, really one reason to come to Jesus. Now, let me give you an image that's really special to us here as a family. I want to introduce you, Ashley Lundvall, spelled with two E's, no Y, as I was reminded as she saw my notes. Okay, Ashley's going to come over here. Uh, Ashley's not about to get up and walk over here because Ashley has been paralyzed for over 20 years. She was not born paralyzed. Something happened in her life where she became paralyzed. She's going to tell you a little bit of her experience, and this passage means a lot to her. Um, Hey, guys, would you guys unmute um, Allison's mic? Got it. Sweet. Awesome. Ashley, it's yours. Let's go. I told Greg this is really dangerous. Give me a microphone in the middle of a sermon. Let's go. (laughs) So to give a little bit of context for those of you that I don't know well, like Greg said, I've been in a wheelchair for almost 25 years now. I was actually um, born and raised in Indianapolis and was out here in Wyoming at a camp and was in a ranching accident, which is why I'm in a wheelchair. And so a little bit of context there. Um, I was 16 years old when my accident happened. And so if you can remember being 16 years old, you have your whole life in front of you. You've got all these plans and all these dreams about what you think God's going to do in your life. And then something like this happens. And so I had a lot of questions about why God let this happen to me. Uh, The first couple years were really rough. I was depressed and angry and bitter and really was dealing with a lot. But fortunately, God brought people into my life that showed me and taught me lessons that I don't think I ever would have learned otherwise. But one of the most interesting things was how other people started to react to me now that I had a disability. Um, The first thing that people would usually ask, especially my parents, um, which sounds crazy for me to say out loud, but they would always ask my parents, like, you know, what did she do? And my parents were always confused by that. Like, what do you mean? And they, they assumed that I had done something bad, and then this was God's way of punishing me. Like, I was this crazy teenager that was running around doing all these bad things, and so God had allowed this accident to happen. So that was a reaction that a lot of people had. But the other reaction that people always like to do is they automatically assume that, that I want to be healed. And so I can, I'll never forget the first time this ever happened to me. I was speaking not too long after my accident, And without asking me, without anything else, this group of women came up and they put their hands on me and they all started praying. And some of them began to, um, what I'm assuming they were doing was speaking in some type of tongue and things like that. And it scared me to death. And my sister was with me and she got laughing so hard she actually left. Um, So she left me there sitting there with all these strangers I didn't know. And I hadn't asked for this and I wasn't sure what was happening and it was kind of weird. And then actually about a year ago, where's Priscilla? Yeah, she's here. So about a year ago, Priscilla and I were sitting outside of um, Veritas Academy where I work, and out of nowhere, this minivan pulls up, and this guy gets out with these three, I don't know, 20-ish year old girls, and they were like, we're driving around the town of Cody praying for people, and one of them had had a vision from God or something about someone with a spinal cord injury. I can't remember all the details. So they saw me sitting there next to my car and automatically thought, oh, there's a girl in a wheelchair. Let's go heal her. And so they all jumped out of the minivan, and they come running over. And they were like, hey, they explained what they were doing, and they said, we'd like to, you know, heal you. And I was like, 
I'm sorry, what? And they were like, we'd like to lay hands on you. And I said, here's the deal. You can pray for me. That's great, but don't touch me. Because <laughs> number one, I don't know you guys, and I don't like to be touched. So they start all their whatever, and next thing I know, Priscilla's like 300 yards away from me, totally left me there with all these strange people that I didn't know. And of course, obviously, they prayed and did all their stuff, and I'm still sitting here in my wheelchair. And so I've had some really interesting interactions with people that they automatically assume I did something wrong or that I want to be healed and that that's their, you know, kind of position that they need to do that. And so the couple things that I want people to know, and the first thing is that when bad things happen in our life, it isn't necessarily a result of direct sin. Um, Greg hasn't talked about it yet, and I don't know if he's going to later in his sermon, but in John 9, we have the, the gentleman that was blind, and Jesus goes to talk to him, and the first thing the disciples say is, what did he do? What did his parents do? And that was just kind of the assumption. And yes, all bad things in this life that happen are a direct result of sin in general, but specifically, that's not, that doesn't mean that God's like, oh, they messed up, here's some punishment for that. And so that's the first thing I always let people know is that this does not mean that God is mean or evil or bad and, and wanted to punish me and wanted to stop me from something. It's actually just the opposite. And also that I automatically, people assume that I want to be healed. This may come as a shock to people, but I love my life. Um, I'm perfectly happy and content sitting in this wheelchair. And so a lot of people just assume that I want to be healed, and that's not actually the case. When I think back to when Jesus saved me at 12 years old, that was the healing that I needed. I was spiritually paralyzed. And I know a lot of people that are walking around today physically that are more paralyzed than I am sitting in this wheelchair, and it's a spiritual paralysis. So in a sense, I've already been healed because God did that at 12 years old before I even had my accident. But the second thing is, like I said, I love my life. I've got a great husband and a wonderful daughter. I've got a job I love. I have this amazing church and a great community group that I wouldn't give up for anything. And I have all these opportunities that God's given me to talk to people that I never would have had if I had remained able-bodied. And so, like Greg said, to get to the point, everything that happens to me in this life that's been good has been a direct result of that accident happening 25 years ago. And I can honestly sit up here today and say that I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it happened because of where I'm at now 25 years later. And I think back to, you know, what people would look at when they would see me and they think, what did she do or that I automatically want to be physically healed. And at the end of the day, I sometimes wonder if I can't reach more people sitting in this chair and giving glory to God in that way than I ever would have had I remained able-bodied. So I was looking at different quotes over the weekend, um, and John Piper has one that I thought was really good. We hear about a lot of healings in the Bible. We talked about one this morning, the blind man. A lot of times we think, man, I wish I was born in Bible times and Jesus would have healed everyone and it would have been amazing. But I think of the Apostle Paul, and Greg mentioned him. He's one of my favorite Bible characters because of all the things that he went through. And we never see anywhere in the Bible where Jesus healed Paul of his affliction that was physical. We never see that. We don't know if it happened. It might have, but we're not told about it. So in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul has cried out. He says specifically three times for this thorn in the flesh that he had. A lot of people think it was a vision thing. We really don't know exactly what it was. But Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm going to put my power on display not by healing you, but by sustaining you. In other words, healing displays the work of God in John 9 with the blind man, and sustaining grace displays the work of God in 2 Corinthians 12 with Paul. What is common in the two cases is the supreme value of the glory of God. The blindness is for the glory of God, the thorn in Paul's flesh is for the glory of God, the healing is for his glory, and the non-healing is for his glory as well. So I can sit up here in front of all of you and say that I'm paralyzed for the glory of God. If God chooses to heal me on this earth, great. That will hopefully be all for his glory. But if I remain in this wheelchair, it's also going to be for his glory. And I know that one day I will be completely healed when I get to heaven. And then I'll get to chase Greg around in heaven and it'll be great. So, so a lot of people then to wrap up say, well, if you don't want to be healed, then how are we supposed to pray for you? I'm not saying you can't pray that I be healed. <laughs> I have a lot of friends. I have a mother that's been praying for 25 years that God would heal her daughter. Um, and just because God hasn't chosen to do that up to this point doesn't mean he doesn't heal, hear those prayers. It just means that right now he's receiving more glory for me being where I'm at. But that doesn't mean that he's not going to eventually heal me. Maybe 
I'll go home today and have a nice surprise. I don't know. All I can say is that I'm content with where I am, and as long as God gets glory, I'm fine either way. But there are some things you can pray for when you see people suffering. Um, just because I'm content where I am doesn't mean that this is easy. Um, I fell a month ago. A lot of people don't know and I broke my femur, and I've got a rod in it now, and there's lots of things that happen that go along with that. So there's still a lot of physical things that people have to deal with and struggle with on a daily basis. It's okay to pray that God relieves them of some of those things. That's great. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is that you, it's that you pray for their spiritual healing. And I, Greg says this all the time, that I would rather wheel into heaven than walk into hell. And that's so true because I understand that life is so short here on this earth. We've just got such a small amount of time. I'm going to have all eternity to walk, okay? I'm going to have all eternity to run up down the streets of gold and come visit all of you in your mansions. It's going to be great. But I would much rather be in a chair on this earth and have my sins forgiven and have a relationship with Jesus Christ and know that I can reach more people sitting in this chair than I ever could standing. And so when you pray for people, um, that's great. But also remember the most important thing is their spiritual healing and that no matter what people go through in their life, that knowing that God gets the glory is the most important thing of all. So. Man. Oh, sweet. Thanks. Did you guys hear what she said there at the end? She would rather wheelchair into heaven than walk herself into hell. Guys, the point of the first setup is five men tearing this open and making this big scene and dropping them in, right? Getting them there. The expectation is Jesus is about to heal them. And he says, hey, your sins are forgiven. And what he's trying to point out to all of you, what Ashley's trying to point out to all of you very obviously right now is that Jesus knows what we really need. He knows what you're saying you need, what you think you need, what you feel like you want. But Jesus knows what you really need. And Jesus came to meet that need. So thank you, Ashley, for sharing that. Now the question is, okay, is Ashley just crazy? Right? The answer is yes. <laughs> but is she crazy in her belief in Jesus? The question really is, does Jesus have the, the ability, the authority to forgive sin? That's the real question. Can he actually forgive sin? All right? So this gets us to our next setup. Look at verse 3. This story just builds. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Okay, remember, Matthew is writing to Jews who understand what that, what that means, blaspheming. So he doesn't go into explaining exactly what we mean by blaspheming. If you don't know what blaspheming is, Mark gives you a little bit of an understanding of why this is such a big deal to the scribes. In Mark chapter 2, verse 6, he says, now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. So it seems like Jesus might have been re either could tell by looking at their face or reading their minds. And this is what they say. Why does this man speak like that? Particularly talking about, hey, your sins are forgiven. What, he is blaspheming, and this is what, what they're trying to say. Who can forgive sin but God alone? This is key. A Jew already knows this. So when Matthew's writing the Jews, they already understand this. But Romans, who Mark is writing to, and you guys, maybe you don't know that. And so this right here is an extremely important piece of this whole thing, and it's a setup. It's not about what Jesus, that he says something unexpected. It's that he implies something unexpected. By Jesus saying, hey, son, your, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is implying that he is either equal with God or is God. He's in a position or has the authority to forgive sin. Do you see what's happening here? He's claiming to be God. Now, you're a bunch of Christians sitting in an ex-Baptist church called Outpost, right? You've kind of grew up around the Bible. You go, yeah, of course Jesus can forgive sin. I never Listen, I was just at a wedding where people don't believe in Jesus, and they all agreed with me. Yeah, Jesus forgives sin. Okay? But if you're sitting in that room, this is nuts. This is like me coming to your house and go, listen, I, I can forgive you of your sin. Y'all would look at me like a psychopath, wouldn't you? You should. And so he, because what me saying that is implying that I have some kind of authority that is supernatural, a God-like authority. So he's implying that he has an association with or is God. So this is technically blasphemy. And this is what actually they're going to kill Jesus over. That's how important it is in this culture. They're going to kill Jesus for this. So the question is, does Jesus have the authority? Well, listen, we're at the end in, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, we're at the end of a section in Matthew. Now, you guys remember the Sermon on the Mount? 
Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. This section we're in right here is all about the authority of Jesus. From the end of chapter 7 all the way to chapter 9, verse 8, you have been inside of a section that's all about the authority of Jesus. Let me show you this. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, go over to uh, chapter 7 and look at verse 29. Look at what the crowd's response is to what Jesus says. In chapter 7, verse 29, let me go there real quick. Oh, that was fast. Good job, Bible. Chapter 7, verse 29, look what it says. For he was teaching them as one, so let's go to verse 28. Uh, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Uh, For he was teaching them as one who had what? Authority. Matthew's, this word's important to Matthew, because they had authority. Not as their what? Oh, man, not as their scribes. Okay, not as described. Then we go into chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. That's one literary unit. Now, a lot of guys like to break that up, and you can break that up. It's one literary unit. That's why I made Addison teach the whole thing. Because 8, 1 through 17 ends with him talking about, in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Jesus has authority over the body. He has the authority to heal sicknesses and diseases. He has the authority to do that. In the middle of this section, something crazy happens. A Roman understands that Jesus has authority. And in the middle of it, in chapter 8, verse 9, it says, For I, too, am a man under what? Authority. So this, uh, this leader, this soldier, he goes, listen, I- I've got authority, Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, uh, I'll come with you. And the guy goes, no, don't come with me. Just send me because I am your servant. I understand how authority works. You're the authority here. Just say what to do, and I'm out. I'll go do it. You hear this? It's about authority. So that 1 through 17 is about authority. 18 through 22 of chapter 8. How does this talk about authority? Well, when the scribes, again, they get brought up. When the scribes go, one of the scribes says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says to him, Foxes of the have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay, so it doesn't say the word authority, but it does say Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. You guys remember what that means? It means he's the authority of all authorities. Let me read you Daniel chapter 7. This is where we hear about the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of the heavens, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the, uh, came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. What does that sound like to you? That's like authority in all caps, right? That sounds like authority to me. So it it talks about Jesus is the uh, Son of Man, the one who has authority. Okay, then... And 827, he tells the wind and the waves to stop. And what, is it, what happens? They stop. And the disciples at the end, they marvel at this man because the, it says the wind and the waves obeyed him, which means that what? When it comes to the wind and the waves and Jesus, who's the authority? Jesus is the authority. And then we get to verse 27, the next section, or 31 to 32. So the next section is all about him uh, setting free a demon-possessed man. And when the demon, when Jesus shows up, it's like D-Day on the, the, the garrison beaches over there. And he comes and storms the beaches, and the, and the demons are like, oh boy, right? And they say, if you're going to send us out, please just send us in these pigs. And Jesus commands them, go. Who's the authority between Jesus and demons? Jesus is the authority, so it shows that he has power and authority in the spiritual realm. And then we get all the way to here. So this is the buildup. This whole thing has been building up. The Sermon on the Mount, let me go to this side because it helps your eyes. The Sermon on the Mount is him saying all these things. You're like, okay, that's really amazing, but are you the, should we even follow you? I mean, I like your teaching, but should I follow you? And then chapter 8 all the way through 9-8 is going, here's why you should follow him. He has authority over all the nations. He has authority over the wind and the waves, all creation. He has authority over demonic powers. He has authority to heal bodies. This is the one who has authority. So it's been a big setup, and then Jesus pushes the envelope right here. I just love guys like this. It's like a 
It's like a little guy. You know that little guy who always likes to fight, right? He's always just kind of poking the bear. He wants to fight somebody. He's like, I beat you up. He's like, all right, buddy, let's go outside. We're going to test it. And so Jesus is sort of like, I'm going to make this even worse. So verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think this evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Guys, let's just go ahead and explain something. Physically, how hard is it to say either one of those? I don't feel like it's that hard. I just said it. You can say that. Okay? Now, let me just expose to you why one is harder than the other. It's easy for me to come to you right now and go, your sins are forgiven. How am I going to prove otherwise? How are you going to prove me otherwise? Can you? Probably not. It's a lot harder, though, if I said, guys, hold on, watch this. Hey, Ashley, I want you to stand up and walk. What would you guys want to see? It's like, all right, let's see this, right? Stand up and walk. I'm a little more nervous about saying one versus the other, right? Because I don't have to worry about proving anything to you in one, but that is something specific. So he, that's what Jesus is saying. Which is easier to say? Now, here comes Jesus about to tell you this is the point of the whole section. It's to prove the authority of Jesus. But that you may know. And look what he does again. He's talking to scribes again, so he mentions the Son of Man again. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. That's not what everyone expected. So here's the setup. Only God can forgive sins. Okay, here's the punchline. Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Nobody can just tell a paralyzed person to get up and walk except for God. And the point is Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Jesus is God. If there was ever a mic drop moment in the Gospels, it's this one and the resurrection. Like, bam, right there in front of them. Now, listen, it's in this moment, listen, I don't want to totally distract from the point of this, but I want to say something to you because Ashley brought up something that is really important. What's the point of miracles? What is the point and the purpose of miracles? Well, I got four things I want to tell you. In our cult, let me tell you four things. Before I, let me preface, let me set you up and then hit you with not a punchline, but something good. Okay, in our culture, there's a lot of people who want to come to Ashley, jump out their van, come up, lay hands on her, and pray for her that she be healed. All right? And they want the healing for the healing. Right? They want the healing for the healing. They, they need charisma. I've literally heard a pastor say, we need to see healings every day because people are not going to believe unless they see this. This passage is going to prove to you that that is a complete lie. Jesus doesn't heal just to heal. He heals for four reasons. Here's, here's the four reasons I'll tell you. Number one is evidential. Healings, miracles, point to God's power at work. It's not about the healing, guys. It's about God and his power to do so. It's evidential of God's power. They're empathetic, meaning they point to God's compassion. You know how many times it says that Jesus looked at them with compassion? It shows God's love and compassion for us. Is God not compassionate because he won't heal Ashley? By no means. But it points to his compassion that he would heal. So it's evidential, it's empathetic, and it's evangelistic. It points to God's message. The healing, he's doing this because he wants to show, number one, I have the power and authority. Number two, I really care about this guy. That's why he calls him, hey, my son. It's compassion. But it's pointing to the message of Jesus, which is the gospel. If we get caught up in healings, in signs and wonders and miracles and speaking in tongues more than the gospel, we messed up. Because this is all about the gospel, guys. Not how impressive you are, or I am, or some healer is, or some televangelist is. It's about the gospel. The whole point is not to make money. The whole point is to get you towards Jesus. And the last thing is, it's eschatological. You go, what is that? Eschatological is just a, just a listen, theologians like to feel smart, okay? And so they come up with other words. It just points to the end, and Ashley said it. There will be a day where Ashley will be healed. She may not have it here, but there will be days she gets to kick that wheelchair into the pit of hell and walk with Jesus. It says she will be given a resurrection body. She won't be some like floating spiritual orb moving around, talking to Jesus. She will be given a resurrection body. Go read Corinthians. 
she's going to get to do that. So here's the four things that miracles are for. Evidential, empathetic, evangelistic, and eschatological. That's what they do. So listen, I pray, I have prayed for Ashley that she would be healed. She's got no problem with that. I've also prayed for her pride because she also has a problem with that, right? <laughs> We're good friends. We, we can jab each other. She's got a lot of things to pray for. I pray that she'd be healed, but I have, my prayers have changed to, I pray that Ashley would be healed so that maybe you guys would see that God and his message is real. Not to wow you with the healing, not to give you hope that you're going to get healed right now, but that you would have hope that the gospel is true. You can have what you really need, which is forgiveness of sins. That's why I hope she gets healed. And to God be the glory if she does. Now, the question is, this is a setup on top of a setup on top of a setup. So he, he set it up. They, they kind of set Jesus up. Jesus embraces the setup, hits him with the punchline. He heals the guy. Now, just imagine, just for a second, again, his, his four buddies, as desperate as they were, were trying to fight to get into the room. They couldn't get into the room. Four grown men couldn't get in the room. This man who's never walked in his life, suddenly gets healed, stands up, and I guarantee you everybody just parted. The bro walked out, no problem. No problem. You could hear people climbing off the roof, jumping down, meeting their buddy in shouts of joy out on the street. Guy walks out. And the proof and the point is this. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And here's the final setup. Here is the final setup. Will you surrender to the authority of Jesus? Look at the passage. Jesus heals the man right in front of everyone, proving that he has the authority. They witness the healing. They see it. Historically, this is true. They see it happen. And look at verse 8. Here's the punchline. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God. We pause right there, and you're like, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. But remember what I said. A punchline is something that's unexpected. Finish the sentence. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Here's the unexpected. They missed it. They completely missed the point. Could Jesus have made it any more obvious? Any more obvious. He set it up. I'm going to heal this guy so you know I can forgive sin. Okay, let's see it. Heals the guy. So what does that mean? He can forgive sin. What do they do? Stay on the healing. Wow. See the guy just walk out? And they miss it. And so that man walks out. And if you go to the next passage, it says Jesus walks on. They miss it. And that's the last setup, and it's meant to teach you a, a lesson. And the lesson is this. Will you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and he has the authority to forgive your sin? Every single thing wrong you've ever thought, said, or done in your life, that he has the ability to forgive it. And no matter what happens to you the rest of your life, you'll have everything you need because you're forgiven. And one day when he comes, as John 14 tells us, he comes to get us. And he, in 1 Peter 1.30, he comes to bring us the grace of God to us. You're going to receive one statement, which is, well done, good and faithful servant. He just proved it's true. Do you believe it? That's what this is for. And now what will you do? Now here's the thing. You guys are arrogant. And so am I. And we have what I think C.S. Lewis calls chronological arrogance. We think, and this is what I mean by that, chronological arrogance means this, or historical arrogance means this. You think that if you were there in that day, you would have got the point. If I had been there, I'd be like, your authority forgives sense. I get it. Totally makes sense to me. You guys are idiots. Right? You think that you would. Here's the thing. This passage is telling you, you wouldn't. Many of you right now, if, if Ashley were able to get up out of her chair right now, in the power of God, what she has the ability to do, many of you would leave here and you'd still walk into hell, and you would not believe in Jesus. Uh, a little over a year ago, I was watching a debate between Sam Harris, who's one of what's called the four horsemen of atheism, Sam Harris, and a guy who is uh, William Lane Craig, who's a gifted, well-known apologist, and they're having an argument about God, and Sam Harris uh, says on there, he says, listen, if I were to write down a, a, a huge number on a piece of paper and put it in my pocket, and one of you in the crowd could come up here and tell me what that number was specifically because God gave you the answer what that number was, then I'd believe in Jesus. And I remember when I was watching that YouTube video, I was like, man, I just got I wish you would just give somebody a word in that room, and then they could just go up there and tell him. And it didn't happen. And I just got convicted. Studying this passage, here's the thing, it doesn't matter. Sam Harris probably wouldn't have believed. Sam Harris would have found some other 
intellectual way to work and weasel his way out of it because he does not want God. He's not convicted over his sin. If you look at the scribes, you go later into nine, uh, chapter 9, I think it's verse 34, and these scribes, these Pharisees, they, they found an intellectual way to work their way out of believing and trusting the authority of Jesus. They go, oh, you, you cast out demons by, uh, by, by the prince of demons. That's how you did this. We figured, we, oh no, we figured it out. We thought it was God for a second, but whew, I'm glad somebody over here figured it out. You do this by the prince of demons. They're gonna, you're going to try to figure out some way to get out of it. And so I've got a verse for you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. This is for somebody in this room. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. I want you to know, friends, if some of you have ears to ear and eyes to see what this message is talking about, I hope you see that Jesus is your only hope in life and death. And if you come to Jesus, Romans chapter uh, 9, verses, or chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, says that if you believe in Jesus and you confess that he is, and it says, Lord, if you confess that he's the authority of your life, you will be healed. You will be forgiven of all your sin. It's with your heart that you believe and with your mouth that you confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's all it takes. That is faith in Jesus. And he will heal you. So if one of you in this room, and you're looking, you're seeking, you're asking, you're knocking, I'm telling you right now, God will open that door for you. You've just got to surrender to him as Lord. And the question is, will you? Father, thank you so much that we get to be here. And thank you so much for your, your gift of grace. God, I, I want to own with humility that there are so many times, Jesus, I know I completely miss the point of what you're trying to show me in my life. But I'm just thankful for your grace. Everyone in this room, even if we're missing it, right now we've got the truth that if we just believe in you, confess that you are Lord, trust your authority, and believe that you have the power to forgive sins, that we'll have everything we need because we are forgiven. And I pray that somebody in this room will just confess, Jesus, that you are Lord. They'll pray to you, surrender to you, and to your authority. And they experience your grace. God, I thank you for what you've done in Ashley's life. Thank you for the message you've sent, you've sent the messenger you've sent, sent to us through a woman who's in a wheelchair. I thank you you saved her. You've given her happiness and joy and peace in the midst of something that everyone in this room would consider a nightmare of a life. Thank you for the message, God, that even if in a wheelchair, the message of Paul, that even if I suffer every loss, that with Jesus I have everything I need. God, I pray that somebody in this room would just believe that you have everything they need. And for those in this room who are Christians who've already experienced that, God, I pray you encourage them right now. As they stand to sing and worship you, I pray they would worship you knowing that they have everything they need. And so whatever they were worried about coming into this room, they can leave knowing they ain't got nothing to be anxious about. Their God has forgiven them. And one day, when this all wraps up and their vapor passes, they will get to experience your great abundance of joy. So let us sing in Jesus.